independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And good morning, listeners. Sorry about that. Um, good morning and welcome to Green Left Radio. Um, you have Jacob and Lali on, Lalita on the line. Um, and, and we have a packed program. We have uh, lots of news from Green Left Weekly, of course. And we also have a couple of interviews which will grab the interest of um, listeners as they keep listening. So this week has been an interesting week, Jacob. Yeah, well, it's been um, obviously quite a tragic week because many listeners probably heard um, about the Manchester bombing right. that happened. Yeah. And it um, was very sad. I mean, you know, the, the they're still investigating, but somehow you notice that with the bombing news, Syria has slid off the front pages of the newspapers and the TV screens. So refugees, uh, uh, quite a few refugees died. Um, I, I can't remember the exact numbers. Was that, uh, you know, it was 30 yeah. or 40. I think on what is probably most interesting has been the kind of international kind of response and the local response from the right-wing side of politics. And you've had, in a sort of comedic way, Robert, our Lord Mayor Robert Doyle in the city of Melbourne after this attack is base, as basically, I'm not even sure if he's actually serious because it seems so luxurious that it couldn't be serious, but it probably is serious, um, that he thinks after the Manchester bombs we should equip our police officers here with assault rifles. Oh, um, and there's also obviously been, you know, this reaction um, from, you know, the Tories that, you know, this is why we need more border security, this is why we can't let refugees in, whereas I think by contrast... Um, Corbyn and the Labour Party's response has been very principled, um, whether, you know, they're basically calling for solidarity and unity and to not for, for this kind of, you know, nonsense kind of, you know, you know, paranoia about terrorism, you know, taking away of civil liberties and, you know, giving in to Islamophobia and racism. No, the, I find this whole scenario really, um, Interesting, I suppose, but more frustrating because it's the, 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 the approach taken by everybody in the world, all the leaders, the current so-called leaders in the world, is punitive. So you punish anybody and everybody who steps out for line. It's not working. There's more and more and more problems appearing. Um, Portugal has already demonstrated um, strategies of how to... Um, solve or meet the uh, problems that are facing the the world with terrorism now and yet they don't listen to any of this um, how, how do you harness this how do you face a world where so many people are so angry about so many things 
No one has yet analyzed that or sat, to, sat down and talked about it. Nobody even thinks, oh, these people are just terrorists. That's just a simplistic over, uh, well, well, it's oversimplified for a start. Um, you know, why do we have so many young people who are so violent? I haven't heard a single media person analyze this issue. And yet, um, they, today, Trump um, is calling for all the NATO members to spend more money on defense. So in other words, increase the trade and the profit-making enterprises like the military complex. That's what he's talking about. Hmm. So it's a, it's a punitive um, approach, which means more arms are being sold. Not enough um, thought is going into how you obtain peace. How do you, how do, you do that? It's a question no one is even addressing. Not a single leader in this world is talking about, um, or prominent leaders anyway, whether it's Trump or, or Turnbull or... I heard Julie Bishop on the radio today and how wonderful, I mean, she says it's really, really important for us, for us to maintain relationship with the U.S. because the U- after the bombing, U.K. cut off sharing information with the U.S.A. because they were leaking uh, information. And this, this is a vicious circle you're going into that you focus on punishment and you pour money into or billions of dollars into defense and no one's talking about how do you prevent this? What's the source of the problem is, is a question that no one seems to want to talk about or discuss, including a lot of journalists who consider themselves progressive. Um, they talk about peace, but they don't talk about, okay, why? It, uh, you know, this, this religious focus is, is very frustrating. It gets mm. a bit boring after a while in a sense, you know, and therefore they start bombing the place. The mm. anger that's animated, is it mental health? Is it, is it economic, social problems? We know some of the answers, but not all of it, obviously. So we need to, you know, start discussing this a bit more. We need to find people and talk about these things. What do you think? Well, I think one of the interesting kind of, you you mentioned, you know, the progressive kind of response to some of this. And I guess one, some of the responses, I think, to, you know, a tragedy like this has been, oh, this is, you know, there's often this common kind of theme of we just have to be nice to each other, you know, which I don't think actually presents any kind of solutions to the problem because unless you're going to be standing up there and campaigning against, you know, the anti-terror laws and then pushing toward for an economic alternative where, you know, people aren't being, you know, um, screwed over by, you know, austerity, you know, cutting of social services, then these problems are going to continue, you know, to happen. And especially, you also, there also has to be opposition to, you know, Britain's imperialist role. Um, which and in, the USA's. Uh, I think going on to Donald Trump, it's, this is, I just want to bring up this funny kind of thing. Um, you know, there's all this, one of the great things about, um, the, British Labour Party's um, manifesto is it makes it very clear that they will they will cut all arms deals with the Saudi Arabia um, regime, oh, um, and by comparison, you know Donald Trump can talk about how you know he's going to stand up against terrorism, yet he's all too happy to meet up with the leaders of Saudi Arabia who literally train up terrorists, um, and and it's like you know. There's no transparency. Like they, they just the this is the the actual character of what the establishment is. They mm. they're all too happy to brush up fear of Muslims, yet cozy up to actual you know 
terrorists because, you know, it serves their economic interests. Nice terrorists. Anyway, uh, what we forgot is, before we started, important day today, sorry day, and we should um, stop for a minute and, and um, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. So, uh, you know, the studio stands on um, uh, Wurundjeri land of the Kula Nation, and we... Um, recognize the, uh, that the, the land was never ceded and we are on stolen land. Mm. And Sorry Day is something that we have to take seriously um, because of this very topic we're talking about. The indigenous peoples of the world are being disinherited or have been disinherited and the, the stolen land has been misused for profit-making purposes. So we need to talk about it a bit more. And I've got an interview coming up later on the program. Uh, that's why I thought I'd leave that um, a little bit later, but I think we need to acknowledge a few things. One is that it's 50 years since the last referendum. Now they're talking about referendums. And it is, I think it's 20 years since the um, uh, release of the report of the stolen generation. And also it's, um, I think it's 25 years uh, since Marvel, if I'm correct, somebody can, I'm sure somebody will correct me soon. Um, so it's, it's an important day. Um, we, we have a guest later on, uh, just after 8, to talk about all these things. Okay, move on to other um, There's a good story of what's um, hap- um, in relation to this. Um, but basically there was uh, a meeting um, of a referendum council in Uluru talks, um, which had a number of delegates from yeah, the indigenous right. um, community. Um, and basically what's, you know, kind of happened is a group of delegates basically walked, walked out, out yeah. of the national first person submit, um, summit to discuss constitutional recognition, stating we won't sell out our mob, yeah. basically voicing this, you know, opposition to this whole thing that's being pushed by the establishment of constitutional recognition. Um, you, you know, it's, it's as a kind of, as Jenny Monroe, you know, states here, it's not a dialogue, it's a one-way conversation. Every time we try and raise uh, an issue, our voices are silenced. That's right. It always happens, doesn't yeah. it? And then there's this good re, um, Linda Thorpe, you know, brings up, you know, we as sovereign First Nations people reject constitutional recognition. We do not recognise occupying power or their sovereignty because it serves to disempower and takes away our voice. And that we need to protect and preserve our sovereignty and that, you know, and as an alternative to constitutional recognition, um, they, it states here that we demand a sovereignty treaty, sovereign, a sovereign treaty with an independent sovereign treaty commission and appropriate funds allocated. Mm. Um, you know, basically because there's all this kind of debate, you know, some people kind of fall for this argument that, you know, we need constitutional recognition, but, you know, what we actually really need is a, a treaty. Yeah, and, and you know, not, not that treaties are perfect. Like, look at, look at New Zealand and I think even Canada, they've got yeah. a treaty. So it, they're not perfect, but it certainly gives them a lot more independence over their own affairs, which is what they've been fighting for for decades or centuries, really. Um, so that would be interesting to watch as to how it progresses. But, you know, um, the government will get what it wants. They, they love to to stamp out opposition. And it, the, the, the fundamental problem here is um, they cannot give the land back or they don't want to uh, give the land back. I had a discussion with somebody about this. They said, oh, it's based on the Constitution. But they fail to understand it's a white man's Constitution. Hmm. 
That's the fundamental thing, and that is never ever stated. It's always, oh, you got to obey the law, yeah. But whose laws? Whose laws are mm. they? They are white man's law, the invaders' law. Mm. These are the people who have taken our land, and you want us to obey their law. Mm. And the constitution is part of that. And I'm not surprised they walked out. There are a lot of traditional people who don't like this, and I guess there'll be splits there too. Because there'll be some who will want to move on and forget about the past and say, look, let's get the best we can for our mob. Um, mm. Like setting up businesses and getting uh, people trained in business and, and so on. But the reality is until the land is given back, um, the inter, in, inter and intragenerational trauma never stops. Mm. I see them at work all the time. It's, it's, it's awful. It's awful to see the emotional damage that's been done to the, the, the indigenous people. And it, this is not unique, I guess, in this across the world. But today that's an important thing. Mm. Anyway, let's go to a break, and then um, we'll come back. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morven Smith and Pauline Fartson, Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate, Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639-8622. That's 9639-8622, a 3CR supporter. You are listening to um, Green Left Weekly um, Radio um, with Jacob and Lali on the line here. Um, I guess we can, one article I like to, in terms of recent news um, that has happened, is um, there's this new proposal um, for PSOs to get expanded powers to search and arrest. Um, this is, has been reported in The Age and what um, basically PSOs are kind of like, you know, are those police sort of mini police officers you see on the streets, um, see on train stations, and, you know, they're apparently, you know, there to, you know, ensure that, you know, um, public people who take public transport are safe, etc. Um, but basically, they're, they're going to get new powers to make arrests, conduct dr- searches for drugs, and respond to incidents around um, train stations they are patrolling. Um, and this is basically, you know kind of like I would argue this is kind of like a bit of a false solution and especially a false solution in terms of addressing um uh addressing you know drug use um because as Green's MP Colin Hartland who slammed the Shah and just said basically said, stated that the new powers would not make the community safer and would encourage people under the influence of drugs to drive um this is all part of this kind of this is all part of this kind of continued trend of, you know, criminalising drug users without actually addressing the fundamental problem, um, the fundamental root causes. And, the you know, there's also this inherent kind of falsity in, you know, treating drugs as a criminal issue as opposed to a health issue. Lali, do you have a story to share? Yeah, it's interesting. I was looking at... Um the um, paper, and I, I looked at um, 
an article on Saudi feminist artists um, in, in inspiring struggle for change, and um, the, the the graphic is just beautiful. It's um, people have to buy their paper to have a look at this. is a It's a woman uh, with a man's um, headdress and only the eyes um, exposed, and there's a like a slogan across just below the eyes. It says, "I am my own guardian." It's a, it's a, it's a beautifully drawn um, little icon, really, and it says. Saudi artist currently studying in Australia. She, as a part of a practice, she creates murals championing the freedom of women in Saudi Arabia. And um, in particular, drawing attention to the prohibitive guardianship laws. And I guess some people may be aware of this, but under these laws, women must be accompanied by a male guardian to do many um, everyday activities, laws, the Saudi, re- Saudi regime slightly relaxed last month is in a sign of pressure from the campaigners. It's really interesting that um, Trump will make um, such enormous financial agreement with a regime that oppresses women so badly. And the um, Islamophobic line has been one of the, the things they use against the, this religion is how they oppress women. And yet the very same regime, the very same oppressive male um, leaders uh, you know have had the, have the, had this incredible financial agreement with Saudi Arabia but anyway continuing he says your work, the work has re- really recently been vandalized um, so she says this is Miss Safa'a um, Safa'a is um, and uh, it says she says, I am my own guardian. A artwork in 2012 never anticipated that it would become part of grassroots resistance movement. I create art as an act of peaceful protest where I exercise my right to civil disobedience. Um, she says she created the mural to let her Saudi sisters back home and here in Australia know that although I enjoy relatively more freedom than they do. I'll use my privilege to fight with them. I wanted to add my voice to the ongoing Twitter campaign that started last year and demands ab- um, abolishing male guardianship laws in Saudi Arabia. So she's a, a, a feminist activist who is currently studying in Australia. doesn't say exactly where. I guess that's a security issue. So Ms. Safa'a says that, Several issues, there are several issues to take into account, but I would like to highlight the glaringly obvious issue of gender, the gender of the artist involved in the mural and its message, as well as the gender of the vandals and the message they send. Vandalism is an act of asserting masculinity physically and visually. And since all artists who have contributed to this mural and myself are female, identifying it felt as though this was a visual assault aimed at silencing women's voices. And this is in Australia. Um, so she says, you know, this campaign through which she produces absolutely uh, just gorgeous murals, it says, this is, this is what she says, says, it is my way of saying that this power belongs to me and I am taking it back. And um, so she assumed that vandals felt the need to act out their fragile masculinity and perhaps mask themselves a new territory. Uh, despite the many gains when made in the arts, it is still men who control and dominate the graffiti and street art scenes. 
vandalism, tagging, graffiti about control and dominating territories. It's a bit like dogs marking the territories with the pays and it. it just it's just a horrible analogy, but that's what it reminds me of. So this is what she does. She, she produces murals and art uh, to counter the um, gender divide and the oppression in Saudi Arabia, and she, she helps with the um, campaign against the Saudi regime and, and their domination in, in Saudi Arabia. So it's quite interesting reading that article. Yeah. Um, just we'll play a quick announcement and then I'll move on to another story from Green Left Weekly Radio. Are you concerned about the growing threat of nuclear weapons? Join the Women's March to Ban the Bomb on the 17th of June in cities across Australia. It's women-led but inclusive of all. Go to womenbanthebomb.org for details. Voice your support for the UN negotiations now underway on a treaty to outlaw nuclear weapons and protest against Australia's shameful boycott of these historic talks. 17th of June, womenbanthebomb.org. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia is a 3CR supporter. I just thought we should we should um, look at another article in relation to women, um, which was written by one of the younger people um, in the Green Left. It talks about the um, assault on campuses, which the uh, main media has deliberately um, circumvented. I say, I'd say. Um, so they they had a research in Sydney. Uh, Forty thousand students took part in a research project undertaken by the Australian Human Rights Commission to find out how widespread sexual assault and harassment really is on Australian universities. The report was due out in May. It was postponed to August. Um, so it's um, interesting to see that the current policy guiding the uh, Western Sydney University, for example, uh, needs to be changed as a matter of urgency. So releasing the data will play an important part in charting an adequate response to the problem. Um, it, so they are going to release the data, and I think you mentioned that they're going to have a meeting um, to discuss the result of the data. So apparently the survey looked at accommodation, safety, student services, sexual assault, harassment, and eco- economic difficulties that women enrolled in tertiary education institutions, fa- inst- institutions face. And it showed that 72, uh, well, almost 73% of female university students had experienced sexual harassment or unwelcome sexual behavior. So obviously the safety on, on and I think that ha- that's the same here in in, in um, Victoria, probably across Australia in most universities, isn't it, uh, Jacob? Well, um, in terms of universities in um, Victoria, um, yeah, this is pretty much a pretty common trend across a number of universities. But my university, which is Victoria University, is particularly. Um, the statistics say that it probably has the highest rates of sexual assault mm. of any of the campuses. Um, and as in response, there actually has been initiatives by, you know, the university itself to address it. You know, they've held public forums yeah. about the whole issue. Although whether these um, solutions are successful or not remains to be seen. I have actually just recently heard, and we'll probably stay tuned for updates on this, um, that 
um, there's good, there is going to be some measures put in place from the second semester. And actually, there is going to be, I'll give a bit of quick plug for event, um, some a group of community development students at Victoria University are actually organising um, a, a public forum, a sort of, you know, event at Nicholson Street campus um, in Footscray, which is um, on Nicholson Street. Um, of VU and it's basically uh, a whole kind of event dedicated against, you know, violence against women and we'll have a number of speakers um, and it will go from 12 to 1.30 and also part of will part of the um, the kind of mean you'll have information stalls and stuff and everything um, but part of the event will be um, there will be a petition that we put forward to the university to remove kind of sexist kind of advertising from the university because there's kind of a number of advertisements at the university. Usually it's for bars or clubs or something which have mm. very kind of sexist kind of imagery. Yes, of course. Um, and I guess one kind of one thing I want to comment on is um, it's sort of implied heavily quite in this article, but one of the issues I think at the heart of, you know, the rates of sexual assault on campuses and why universities, you know, are reluctant to like, you know, take any action or even do something as basic as release data is all, it all really has to do with this sort of nature, the nature of kind of neoliberal capitalism because, you know, universities have to compete with each other. Yeah, it's a business, big um, business. It's a business and, you know, it's, it's definitely not a positive thing for their brand if they're competing with other, other, you know, universities, um, to have this scandal that, you know, that there's, uh, ra- rates of sexual assault and that people could be sexually harassed. Um, you know, on the residents of the universities and, um, itself. So, uh, and those are particularly, um, this is something that we reported in, um, on Green Left Weekly Radio several months ago. Yeah. But there was a case, there's an ongoing campaign in, at the University of Sydney. And during the open day, a group of feminist activists, you know, basically, you know, organised a kind of action um, during the open day of the university, um, where, you know, they're basically pointing to the, the attention of, you know, uh, I think that the kind of message is that to future students kind of giving this message that, you know, your daughter, your, could be, could be assaulted here, kind of, and using, you know, imagery of like, mm. you know, having, it's quite very provocative kind of imagery. Yes, I can tell. And I definitely think the university probably wouldn't have been too happy about it, but hopefully I imagine that it would have put a lot of pressure on them to actually take um, action. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's not just assault against women. Um, I, I had a student living with me some time ago, and he was going to Melbourne University. He was beaten up twice. Mm. He's one of those sort of, you know, skinny kids who looks a little bit vulnerable. And he was totally damaged by mm. that, that physical assault against him. Um, I, I just cannot believe why students would beat other students up. Well, know? there's been a very particularly terrible case that's just happened um, recently at um, the university UTS. I just call it UTS because I don't really know the full name. It's a university in Sydney. University um, Technology Sydney. Yeah. Um, and what happened was a young Muslim woman was actually assaulted by another student. Um, in response, there was actually a rally um, organised, you know, to stand mm. up against this racism. But the um, perpetrator was um, a woman in her 30s um, or something. And when looking at her social media profile, they could see all this kind of, you know, far right, you know, 
sort oh, of imagery, yeah. yeah for, um, you know, but things like you know, supporting reclaim Australia, supporting you know, opposing Sharia law, and it's like this is kind of like this is the logical conclusion of these ideological beliefs, like you know, these kind of far right beliefs. It's the kind of mm. logical conclusion, you know, there shouldn't be any legitimacy given to it, you know, because this is what happens. It ex- it in- expires, you know, people to you know harass and you know, assault young Muslim women on the streets. That is, mm. it's just not okay. And and going back to the incident, what happened... Any woman, not just Muslim women. Um, going back to the particular incident, the, it, it was only stopped because there was a UTS staff for who witnessed the incident and st- um, called the police and stopped it from, from going any further. It's ridiculous. Anyway, let's move on to another piece of news. It's, it's about Manus Island closing. Mm. The the date set was supposed to be the 28th of May, and that's another couple of days ago to go. And uh, some of the refugees are being moved to the U.S. And how long that will take, who knows? And the others have to apply to be moved or go somewhere. Um, so at this stage, we haven't heard any details of it. Have you heard anything? Not at this point. Um, no. But it's. It's been one of those things that has been in constant limbo because the government, Australian government's kind of like avoiding it, avoiding it, yeah. um, because Manus Island had actually been closed down apparently last year, or so it's like they, but there's still people there though. Yeah, that's that's the kind of contradiction. It's basically, sort of limbo, isn't it? Yeah. Not a good space for the refugees to be in, and. You know, it, this government is just playing silly buggers with people's lives. They've destroyed so many lives already by the detention and the mental health problems caused. Some have been there for well, like almost 10 years, uh, from what I understand. But anyway, um, I want to go into a, another good news story. Um, this is one of my favorite ones, actually. It's Peter Norman's um, mm. anti-racist stand. I don't know if people remember or, or recognize his name. He was one of the few people in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics who stood with the black um, sportsmen who put up, put their fists, the gloved fists, into the air. Mm. And um, you know, it, it's it's nice to know that this Peter Norman actually is from Moreland City Council area. And it says, Norman remains one of the Australia's fastest sprinters. His Australian 200-meter record from the 68 um, Mexico City Olympics still stands. However, Norman was not just an extraordinary athlete. He also took a stand against racism and for human rights. He was a third man in the iconic photo on the medal ceremony of the 200-meter race in Mexico. And during the ceremony, the uh, African-American sprinter John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised their fists in the podium, um, taking a brave stand for black rights. Norman showed his solidarity by wearing an Olympic project for the human rights badge. When asked by the media why he wore the badge, Norman said he opposed Australia's white Australia policy, which placed restrictions on non-white immigration and Aboriginal children being removed from their families, which is amazing, um, mm. brave act in those days, 68. And that the white Australia policy was still around at that time. It mm. was, there was... Um, hadn't been removed, it didn't get removed till uh, Whitlam came. But, um, so in, in 2008 film Salute made by his nephew, Matt Norman, he said, I couldn't see why a black man couldn't drink the same water from a water fountain, take the same bus or go to the same school as a white man. There was a social injustice and I couldn't do anything about from where, about 
it from where I was, but I certainly hated it. So that's, it's, it's interesting. It's nice to know. And I think the council, um, Sue Bolton, who's a councillor at Moreland City Council, is, um, she moved a motion to recognize Pit Normal's important stance. Um, so it's, it's good to know that after all these years, his, his actions are being recognized mm. and um, at an international level, it's so mm. good. Um, anyway, I felt good about reading that article. I think it's, um, <laughs> it's one of those um, stories that, you know, one of the kind of interesting things is there's, when you, t- um, when you look at sports in general, there's always this um, attempt to, you know, completely depoliticise it. Um, yes. um, like, especially any athlete, like, speaking out about anything always, you know, faces some kind of um, backlash, like... Um, you know, the most recent example is um, uh, Colin Kaepernick, I think, from the NFL, who is, who is, you know... Sorry, uh, I'm, I'm total zero uh, on, on, on footy. Yeah, but um, <laughs> he, he um, basically, the first incident was that he refused um, to kneel um, in fr- um, when the oh, national anthem was yeah. playing because he... Um, was arguing against it on, you know, that it's basically celebrating colonialism. That's right. And then he's all, but he's also, one of the most amazing things about him is he's also managed to take a very strong stand um, for Black Lives Matter. He's also, you know, gotten controversy for wearing a Fidel Castro t-shirt. So it's very um, interesting that any kind of politicization, any kind of, you know. Any small token things as well. Yeah, is um, from any um, athlete is, you know, they face so much backlash. um, And it's even, it's even evident in, you know, how in sporting establishments, um, you know, when I went, I went, went to, Palestine versus Jordan game as part of the Asian Cup two years ago. And what was very telling, which was very funny, um, was, you know, how the, you know, the security and that tried to depoliticize the whole event, um, trying to kick people out who, you know, wore t-shirts that said, um, that supported BDS. Yes. Um, or even having free Palestine t-shirts. Although I don't think that stopped people because, well, for me, exactly, I just covered it up and then I took, a, I, and I just, um. Put a jacket it, on, then take it up inside. And, then, and take it up inside. And then there was a really amazing political atmosphere in that game where, you know, people were chanting free Palestine. It was just fantastic. But what was very telling was, you know, how all the security and, or the these um, or the people who own the venue attempted to sort of depoliticize the whole rent, but yeah, because you know, don't forget that in the apartheid days in uh, South Africa, it was sport that was a key factor in driving this campaign. You know, mm. it became international um, and it was successful. It contributed hugely to the dismantling of the apartheid regime in South Africa, and the and the and the bourgeoisie or the rich. Um, and the new liberal people don't want that to be happening again because sports is so highly commercialized. Mm. So they, they're fearful of this stuff. But, I mean, talking about racism, it's interesting that, um, yesterday there was this group of Chinese people who walked from Adelaide to Melbourne. Um, that's because the, uh, during the colonial days, what, 160 years ago, um, Chinese who arrived in, in Melbourne were being charged 10 pounds in tax 
whereas they could arrive in Adelaide and um, come over to Victoria and not be charged the tax. So um, there was, it was just terrible that they were treated with such contempt. Um, many people died in the journey when the, when the Chinese tried to, because they all came to, I guess, to Ballarat too, for the mining, the gold mining, gold rush days and so on. So that's the extent to which racism um, it destroyed people's lives all over the world and, and here. So anyway, that's just giving a bit of a hmm. um, theme. And, and, you know, it's good that it's recognized. And Victoria, uh, uh, Dane Andrews, the, the Premier, of course, uh, formally apologized, which is good, but only a start. Hmm. Um, but Chinese community are pretty, pretty um, pleased about that anyway. So a victory for them, for the people who marched the hundreds. I think it took them a week to march across. Yeah. I think it will be time to play announcement and then yeah, we'll go to, to another news story. you got to remember, Nainok, a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! Our annual Radiothon is almost here and in 2017 3CR is Radio for Change. From June the 5th to the 18th we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au 3CR Radio for Change. support for a 3CR program during Radiothon? Well, you can call us on 9419 8377 or visit our website 3cr.org.au You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. And thank you for being part of 3CR's Radio Thorn. And for those people who are currently enjoying listening to our program, 
um, I just thought I'd remind people that you can actually start paying now. You don't have to wait till the official commencement of the Radiothon. It's pretty important, as you know, to have an alternative media. Um, the other uh, media outlets don't put out the sort of radical news that 3CR does, and it's a people-controlled uh, um, and volunteer-run um, station. So please feel... Um, you know, generous enough to give money and, and anything over $2 is ta- tax deductible. So you can start now if you're enjoying this program. Please consider donating. Thank you. Now, next news, uh, Jacob. Hi, right, so this is a bit of a, um, uh, a story that kind of, you know, frustrates me personally. Um, but li- many lis- listeners might be aware of, um, you know, the ABC presenter Yasmin Abdil Magid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she run, um, she basically, um, you know, a month ago she made, you know, some controversial statements. Um, regarding Anzac Day, um, which, you know, when she wrote a status saying, least we forget Manus, Nauru, Syria and Palestine. And base, and you know, previously, actually the year before, there was actually an SBS journalist who got the sack for making even, you know, stronger statements, um, that basically, you know, attacked the whole, you know, idea of Anzac Day and how, um, but you know, I think what's particularly um completely unjust about this particular incident was Yasmin uh, um probably received more death threats, more abuse, you know, more harassment um for these comments that she made um simply because she was both a woman and a Muslim. Muslim. Which oh, wow. it's um and it's like um the fact that, you know, ABC, you know, has axed her program because and it's most likely they deny that it's because of this controversy. But, you know, I think the reality is it probably is. Um, not that I'm, cl- I'm laying any claims to the fact of the matter. Um, but I think, yeah, it's just a complete injustice that, you know, she has been sacked, especially in the context of all the kind of abuse she received, you know, for particularly, you know, comments that should not be seen as con- controversial. And I think one of the more political kind of points I think I want to quickly make about her comments is, you know, I think one of the things about Anzac Day is there is this sort of, you know, as it's pushed by the establishment, um, is it's kind of, you know, this almost like this collective and major day um, for Australians where they basically focus on, you know, glorifying uh, Australia's role in World War One, But, of course, they don't... F- they don't talk about, you know, the kind of heroic opposition to World War One by, you know, everyday Australians. They don't talk about, you know, the role that, you know, Aboriginal soldiers, you know, did in, um, for, um, played in the war, um, despite the fact they were still treated as second class citizens. Um, and of course, you know, there's, you know, least we forget, you know, this kind of, you know, you know, looking over this tragedy, yet they selectively ignore all these kind of different tragedies that, you know, have happened in the past and, you know, currently happening. I think Yasmin's comments kind of, you know, really put that in the, in the context, although there are some, you know, people even on the left who said that, oh, her comments were inappropriate, which I think, I think that's kind of a wrong argument. And regardless of whether you thought the, um, the comments were inappropriate or not, she did not deserve the abuse and backlash that she received after making those comments. Mm. She just brought the whole thing together because war is a promotion of violence mm. and we are on a campaign to 
reduce or stop domestic violence. And yet this whole persona of war is exactly that. You promote war and violence. And many veterans don't agree with it. That's the sad part. You know, so many of them have been ignored. They have not been appreciated in any shape or form for, for displaying this so-called mm. loyalty to the country. Um, doesn't matter how much you try. The fact is the, the very rich have used the poor to their own ends um, to participate in war. Mm. It's a destructive act. Mm. Why would you want to go and kill people? I, I mean, I cannot for the life of me understand how you can train a 17-, 18-, 19-year-old to go out there and kill another person or kill a baby or, or, or an older person or, or a woman, you know, who, who's defenseless in those, many of those parts of the world. Um, the promotion of that image is, is always wiped out. But the interesting thing is, is the Labour Party that started this whole promotion. Um, Bob Hawke started it in the 80s, and it became such a huge celebration of war and destruction in, mm. in a very not even surreptitious, but, you know, in, in a way that it promotes nationalism. Mm. Um, and that I find that laughable because Australia is not even, it, it's, it's an optional country. Mm. And the people who own the country are invisible almost, mm. whereas these soldiers who are supposed to, supposed to have defended and not through their own fault, they've been fooled or tricked. And somebody really, some of them really genuinely believed that they were defending the country. Mm. That's the thing. That's how they convince people and mentally psychologically manipulate these people into thinking they're doing the right thing. Mm. When you th- sit down and talk to some of these, these people, it's just amazing how mm. they suffer the psychological impact of it. And, and we know that in the U.S., for example, the, the soldiers who've been to war, whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, or wherever they send them, well, they, they engage in so many wars, you know, they could send them anywhere. They are the ones who later when they come home, it's the ex- Patriot, the ex-soldiers who have the highest rate of domestic violence or family violence. Um, so it is not a pretty picture. Hmm. And yes, we're doing the right thing. Hmm. And, and the, other con- the, the other contradiction I find is also, you know, for all this, the, the journalists who were sacked by the Fairfax media didn't, didn't get a lot of hearing from the public because the, those very journalists who put out this reactionary anti-union, anti-people, anti um, poor anti-youth, anti-women um, articles, um, they felt didn't deserve the support they needed. Although it's a union issue and, and people should have rallied around the actions, regardless of their stupidity, um, mm. the fact remains that no one has yet um, come out with a statement strongly, um, strongly supporting Yasmin. Mm. Why isn't there the, the journalist union coming out there and saying, no, this is wrong? We'll mobilize, mobilize our members against this sort of, um, uh, you know, prejudicial, obviously, mm. in fact, it's even racist to a mm. large extent. The, the, you can interpret all that into this action. Um, you know, we support the ABC, but you can't support an ABC that's racist, blatantly mm. racist in the way they, they deal with someone who's made a, what they see as a con- it is not mm. even a controversial statement majority of the people in Australia support the refugees they want them to you know it, it costs Australia mm. so much money to maintain those, yeah. those camps I think the main issue is there's this whole kind of argument from the right about you know freedom of speech oh. yet any kind of controversial statements it's just from the left so you can't have freedom yeah. of speech um, just <laughs> think criticizing we, the government we've got our interview oh yes I forgot about that okay yeah. let me play uh, so
For progressive people around the world, it's been a hard start to the year. Trump is rolling out his racist agenda, inspiring increased racial, religious and gender-based hatred across the globe. It really is time to rally together to fight for a better world. There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward And we have um, Steve Adams on the line. Um, Steve Adams is the president of the University Melbourne University branch of the NTEU. And recently they had a major victory in the Werribee campus. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for um, volunteering to, to talk, talk to us. And this is something positive, which you, is one of the rare moments in, in union history of or recent history that we can celebrate. So tell us about what this um, dispute was all about. Okay, this dispute was part of a a much broader state-based secure work campaign. Uh, Within our sector, precarious work, and what I'm talking about there is fixed-term and casual work, is uh, rife uh, across the sector. Uh, Huge numbers of uh, casual staff are doing a vast majority of the teaching. And uh, the union movement of the NTU saw this as an opportunity, you know, something for us to look at and uh, try to, to, to win some job security, basically, for um, staff members. Mm. It, it, out, sorry, go on. Oh, well, out at the Werribee, that's the Werribee Vet Hospital, um, there were a number of staff there that uh, we thought were sort of incorrectly employed. They were on fixed-term contracts, um, what the university uh, deemed to be externally funded contracts, uh, which is normally used sort of grant money, but uh, what they considered to be externally funded was um, money that was, uh, I suppose, hospital income. So that income was the sort of thing, people coming in and their vet bills, basically, what the university considered to be that external funding, and uh, we argued that that was um, incorrect. Hmm. So that means they were not employees of the university and they would end their employment when the grant runs out, would that be right? 
They were on uh, fixed terms, so ranging from one year to five years. But uh, some of these people had been there at the university, at that campus, for a very long time. I think there was one individual who was there for 20 years on various forms of fixed-term contracts, which, uh, you know, job security is fundamental for people. And I can imagine at the end of each contract there, you know, those people were wondering whether they'd be employed again. So, uh, yes, we managed to get that overturned and these people now on continuing employment. So they've got job security and also a, a massive increase to their superannuation as well. Mm. So that sounds like a really good victory. How did you manage to win such a victory, which is unusual these days? Look, I think uh, there was a lot of time and effort. I mean, credit must go to the Victorian division who, who you know, put the resources behind this Secure Work campaign, the people within our branch, we've got great branch staff, and, and the members themselves. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to put your hand up and identify and as a union member and you're going to, you know, take on management to try and improve your conditions, your working life. So, you know, the, the credit goes to, to everyone. Mm, good stuff. Um, and, and just wonder, Steve, you know, in the days where... There's staff cuts everywhere, and I know recently uh, Victoria University has announced the chopping of 100 uh, positions within that campus. Um, in a broader sense, what's, what's the NTU facing in the education sector? Oh, look, we, we could talk about this for a very <laughs> <sure>. long time. <laughs> look, uh, there's been, I've been at the university for a very long time, and I've seen a, a, a lot of change. Um, Universities have had their funding cut through, you know, various means from, um, you know, both sides of government over the um, last almost 20 years, I think. And, uh, you know, it, it has an effect. Um, the, the universities, the, you know, they have to trim, trim their budgets, I understand that. But universities are very much, uh, how can I put it, uh, they're driven by people. It's a... Uh, you know, that's their greatest resource is, is their people. And when they have to cut money, they have very little choice and to do it through um, cutting jobs and removing people. Um, University of Melbourne, we lost uh, 550 staff through their um, business improvement program, which were professional staff, which uh, lost their jobs uh, a few years ago now. Uh, and, um, yeah, so look, you're seeing it across across the country as um, universities are somewhat forced to, to do this. Hmm. Because uh, Birmingham had stated that universities uh, stand to gain 6% over the next few years in terms of um, profits and so on, and therefore his new budget was... Um, fair on the uh, on the um, universities and there was this air of you know not a i guess a blatant display of universities being business centers as opposed to educational institutions um this this has been going on for a few years now i think it seems like from what he said that view has highly sharpened and it has totally become uh, a business arena. What what does the NTU or yourself really personally think of that um, direction? Oh, yes, look, I think most um, within the union movement and most employees within the universities would see that, you know, there's been a corporatization of, mm. 
of the way the universities act. And, uh, you know, it's interesting with um, from Birmingham's observations. I mean, I think uh, Deloitte um, did uh, somewhat of an audit of the universities to see where they were standing. And, and in a way, somehow they've been punished for having uh, somewhat of a surplus. Mm. You know, a majority of the universities, some universities are not travelling terribly well. But, um, you know, because they were, uh, you know, seemingly, seemingly having some sort of surplus that he could, um, you know, justify the cut. I'm yeah. sure if the universities were not travelling well, um, you know, we'd probably be seeing the same thing happen anyway. So you get punished for doing well? Well, yes, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, look, it, it, it's a difficult um, position. I mean, look, with with what uh, they're proposing, I will say that, it, it, that this package is a proposed package that it, it has to pass through the Senate. But um, basically what you've got is a double-edged sword. I mean, students are going to be required to pay more for their education and the universities are going to receive less to uh, provide that in education. So uh, I don't see who's the, the winner there. The only winner really would be the government saves uh, a lot of money. Mm. Um, one of the other things I've always um, thought about is, you know, I remember the 60, 70 days when students were very radical and they would defend um, staff when these sort of things happened. Nowadays students, many hundreds of them, actually study off campus. You know, I know young people who actually listen to lectures on their, their computer at home. How do you think this, this different style of education has altered the, the political balance of forces within the university sector? Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, uh, a lot of students, I mean, a lot of the resources are there online, so they don't have to come into the, the campus. Uh, and uh, a lot of, also I should add to that, is a lot of students are uh, uh, employed. So they uh, spend a lot of the time where they're not at study um, actually working because, uh, you know, they need to pay the rent and pay for their education. So, yes, there's not that many students there on campus. I also think students these days, because they're paying a considerable amount of money, they're very focused on a desire to to um, get that degree and get mm. out into the workforce. So they're not as interested as perhaps students in the past in getting involved in things sort of outside their own in their own realm. Yes, it's um, looking after their personal. Uh, interests or the investment in in education, isn't it? It's, it's not that. Um... Yeah, they, they are. They're somewhat a bit more self-focused yes. these days than, than looking out. You know, I've been around long enough and seeing you know student politics yes. <laughs> previously. And yes, students were. You know, the numbers of more, how I could say, engaged students was far greater than it is today. Mm. I the... think also too, I should add the the influx of. Um, well, I mean, at University of Melbourne, we've got a, a high number of, uh, you know, sort of overseas students. Yes. And I'm, I'm sure that the level of engagement for them is somewhat different as well because they, they're very much they're here to study and, and most of them go back to their home country. Yeah. And, and I guess that changes a social political composition um, in um, the, the oppositions or political activity of students, doesn't it? It's, it's a... 
sad statement, I'd say, in a sense. Well, well, it it does. And, you know, what's uh, forecast in this budget, I think, will only increase that that, that social gap because, you know, if, if you're going to increase the fees and, I mean, also in that little package is uh, reducing that threshold, the payback threshold. So, um, you know, perhaps people from a lower, you know, socioeconomic area might, you know, think twice before engaging in higher education. Yep, absolutely. Which would be a, a very much a sad thing. I mean, you know, we could... The changes like this, you know, increase that social divide, which I don't think benefits anyone. So it becomes education for the rich, really, doesn't it? Well, you, yes, you would think so. Yeah. yeah. Very much so. Which is a sad statement for a very rich country. One of the very rich countries in the world, isn't it? Well, it, it is. And look, I often scratch my head when, you know, you look at how other countries fund their higher education. And, and we seem to struggle to do so. Um, you know, our politicians talk about the importance of higher education. And, you know, our Prime Minister talks about innovation and being clever. <laughs> yes, I was thinking but of that statement, clever country. <laughs> yeah, it is, and there seems to be this gap between you know, how we get there. They see the value of it. Hmm. They can't seem to make the connection with fully supporting it. And I'm talking about financial support. Hmm. It, 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 you know, but I want to step away from that responsibility, I think it is. Yes, really. Yes. Anyway, thank you so much, Steve. It's nice to have that broader conversation, and congratulations on your victory. I hope this serves an example for your the, the EBA negotiations that are coming up. <laughs> yes, I <I'm, laughs> can't say I'm actually looking forward to that. But, no, I can imagine. But yes. Look, it, it shows uh, you know the union strength and the importance of, of getting together and supporting each other. Really, Absolutely, um, can help you achieve. Um, much better outcomes if we work together. Yep, the very principle of unions, isn't it? It is indeed. Okay. Thank you and have a good day, Steve. You too. Thank okay. you for the chat. Bye. Bye. That was um, Steve Adams, who is the president of the Werribee campus of the Melbourne University branch, talking about their victory there and gaining security um, and long-term um, uh, work uh, conditions, booking conditions for the staff there. Uh, let's go to a couple of announcements and then we'll go into the calendar. For progressive people around the world, it's been a hard start to the year. Trump is rolling out his racist agenda, inspiring increased racial, religious and gender-based hatred across the globe. It really is time to rally together to fight for a better world. There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on 9419 8377 or pay online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
Okay, um, time for the calendar and giving um, listeners a rundown of what's happening in the next few days. A uh, couple of key announcements. One is Radiothon coming up June 5th to 18th. And, of course, we hope that you will give um, generously to the target that's been set by the station, which is $220,000, which um, to a large part goes to fund and support the alternative media that you so keenly listen to. And thank you for listening, and I hope um, people will start donating, and you can donate early. Uh, second announcement is there is a, a conference coming up. It's the Rojava Revolution um, in northern Syria. It, was, it, it is an experiment in radical democracy, feminism, and ecology. For those who are interested, it's on between the 30th of June, Saturday, Friday, through to Saturday. Saturday is a full day, um, and Friday will be half day from what I believe um, in the program. So it is... For, six, for the last six years, Syria has been engulfed in a, a, a terrible war, and the original democratic revolution against the Assad regime has given way to a brutal, multi-sided conflict. But in the midst of this horrible carnage, the struggle in Rojava is a shining beacon of hope for not just the people in Syria, but around the world. Um, for people who believe in democracy. So it's um, the liberation forces have established the de- democratic federal system of, uh, system of northern Syria as a model for multi-ethnic, federal and socially just Syria. So the conference will discuss uh, many of the issues involved in the process of establishing and maintaining this particular type of government. It's being held at the Victoria University. Um, it's on the city campus there. It's 30 Flinders Street. Uh, and for, for more information, please go to Australians for Kurdistan. And bookings are available through there and also through Facebook. So it's the Rojava Revolution in Northern Syria. Now, the other important um, event coming up is for the Green Left Weekly uh, comedy debate uh, supporting this program and, and the newspaper that uh, is uh, generated or printed. Uh, the debate's uh, title, Fake News is Better Than Real News, and it will be featuring Rod Quantock as the chairperson or MC, and we've got Sean Badlam, Pauline Fartson, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, uh, Morven Smith, and so on. There'll be dinner available for, for sale and drinks available as well. So for bookings, go to um, all the W's, trybooking.com slash Q-A-E-N. Or you can go to the Facebook, simply face, um, it's Green Left Comedy Debate 2017. Or you can call 9639-8622 and your support is, will be highly, um, appreciated to keep the paper running and keep this program, um, running. Now, the next announcement is, um, the filming, uh, the, the screening of, uh, uh, no, hang on, let me go to the beginning of this thing. That is the 26th of May, which is today, uh, tomorrow. Um, the, the theater, Corandirk. And uh, in 1981, the people of Corandirk of Corandirk uh, Aboriginal Reserve went head to head with the Aboriginal Protection Board. Um, this was a brilliant experiment in self-determination. They fought um, with great gusto to 
obtain and retain their land in that area. And the theatre is a production uh, that pays, uh, sorry, um, pays tribute, that's the word, to the resilience and adaptability of uh, people who rose to challenge um, uh, the the institutions despite the odds. Now, the theatre is being shown in Footscray Community Arts Centre, 45 Mullen Street, Footscray. And the 27th of May, oh sorry, that, that the theatre corridor goes from today uh, to the t- 27th of May, so it's two days. Um, and tomorrow, Saturday, we have um, another event, Walk with educa- Educators, a Big Steps Family Day. Early childhood education are fed up with earning as little as $20 now, which is less than what LD pays, I believe. And there will be a, um, a rally at Parliament House and Parliament Step. They, um, they're taking the, the campaign to TV screens and billboards across the country. So they deserve all the support they can get. It will be 1 to 4 p.m. at the Parliament Step, Spring Street. Um, so please, if you can, attend this to support the women who look after your children. Public meeting, Safe Public Housing in Ascot Vale. Um, Labour is planning a, to sell off public land in Escotvale to private developers. Labour's plan to, could force residents to move out of their homes and break up existing community. And there's a huge protest that's being planned for that. Replacement of social housing may not stay in public hands or meet the community's needs. So the, the Melbourne needs more public housing, as we know, and not less. So it's 11 a.m. Wingate Avenue Community Centre, which is also called the Men's Shed. So it's 13A Wingate Avenue, Escott Vale. So it's been organised by Adam Bant and the Greens. So if you're interested in defending public housing, that's where you want to be on Saturday um, at 11am. Tuesday, 30th of May, the launch of Activist Lawyer Network. Uh, it's a support and Amnesty International Hang on, sorry, start again. Melbourne activists, legal support and Amnesty International Victoria are holding a forum to launch a special legal network to protect human rights. So initial activities of the network will focus on protecting um, protest rights and utilizing developing lawyers' skills and knowledge regarding activist rights. So on the panel, there will be solicitors who have represented activists over many years. It's at 6 p.m., Federation of Community Legal Centres, 225 Burke Street. It's hosted by the um, Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Wednesday, 31st to the 10th of 31st of May to the 10th of June, there's another theatre. Um, Comrade 6079. Um, it's Vincent Smith thinks a thought starts a diary and falls in love. But the Big Brother is always watching. Set in a world where an invasive government keeps a malevolent watchful eye on citizens, this radical and much lauded staging explores surveillance, surveillance, identity and why Orwell's vision of the future is as relevant now as ever. So it's Comedy Theatre 240. So it's titled April 1984, 1300. Comrade 6079. So that should be interesting for those who like that sort of theatre. 
And another event on the 31st of May, um, there's a protest. No fee hikes make the Liberals pay is a slogan. It's at 12 noon at Parliament Spring Street um, in the city. So on the f- 1st of June, there's a, a panel, 10 years of Indigenous Close the Gap. Why are we still failing? Speakers John Altman from Deakin University, um, Justin McCall from Oxfam, and it's at 7 p.m. at Bella Union Bar, upstairs, Trades Hall Corner, Ligon and Victoria. And the 2nd of June, there's music. Ezekiel Ox and band rock Cheryl, singer, songwriter, filmmaker, actor and political activist. 9 p.m., Cherry Bar, ACDC Land, Lane in the city. So we're coming up to another interview, and this will be on specifically on Sorry Day. So let's go to announcement while I get ready. The um, um. Our annual Radiothon is almost here and in 2017 3CR is Radio for Change. From June the 5th to the 18th we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au 3CR Radio for Change. Okay, we have Belinda Duarte online um, to talk about Sorry Day. Good morning, Belinda, and welcome to 3CR. Hi, Lalita. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for getting up early in the morning to talk to us. So, Belinda, you um, are the CEO of an organization called um, Culture is Life. Um, Perhaps you could start by talking about what this organization is. So Culture's Life is an organisation, a not-for-profit organisation that's been established to support Aboriginal-led solutions um, to build cultural strengthening and mutual understanding to ensure that our young people don't take their lives. Mm. And um, you have launched a couple of campaigns in relation to all this. Um, tell us about your campaigns. Um, look, first of all, what I do want to note is, yes, you know, today is Sorry Day and it's a really significant day. So um, in acknowledging Sorry Day, Culture is Life, um, our campaign was launched, launched earlier in the week, but it's really critical for us on, on a day like today that we take a moment to think about um, what we need to do to consider our relationships with Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people more broadly. But on Sorry Day, it takes on... I guess a deeper reflection, particularly committed to um, thinking about the ongoing impacts and experiences of those who uh, were taken and stolen uh, through the stolen generation in um, a range of different ways and levels affected by the government policy. So I guess there's not an Aboriginal family that's um, in the country that does not have a story to tell about that, whether it's in their immediate family or... um, their extended uh, family or community, and um, today we'll be posting um, 
that acknowledgement and how critical it is for all Australians to take that moment to pause and consider, I guess, the experiences of yesterday and how we continue to experience a whole range of, um, I guess, um, confronting uh, statistics, particularly around uh, young children in care, out-of-home care, um, and the Are We Ready campaign that we've, we launched earlier this week is is actually about those relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people and in particular friendships that in their own way um, have, I guess, found the connections and explored um, ways to to be enriched by um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, because they've spent that time to connect more deeply um, rather than, you know, talk through some of the... Uh, intellect that can be, you know, heavily talked about from the stats and facts, which is absolutely critical to be aware of, but taking the time to actually connect and emotively understand, um, you know, the position and experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through friendship. Mm. One of the things I've always um, wanted to ask somebody of um, Aboriginal culture as yourself is um, where I work, I see lots of people who come in um, I work uh, at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. And one of the significant uh, issues that comes across is people who were um, of the stolen generation had lost so much of their life because of that act and that policy of those days. <coughs> Excuse me. And one of the key things I come across over and over and over again is the fact is that they lost that model, that, that parenting model, and... Um, Therefore, the children they had later, they could not impart any parenting knowledge because they didn't have it. It was a very difficult, traumatic time for the, the people of that generation and the following generations. And you have, hence you have this intergenerational trauma, um, which is reflected, as you say, in many statistics where um, people are not uh, firmly in control of their lives because of the policies and the overarching history. And from what I believe, just just continuing that that thought is, today there are more children out of home care than ever before. So I'm just wondering what your organisation hopes to do about that, or are you involved in any such thing? I think it's really important tonight that there's been some amazing leadership in Aboriginal communities across the country, um, from grassroots community-led organisations through to um, Aboriginal people working in mainstream structures to influence change and you know there's still significant amount of work to do and I do want to acknowledge those um, organisations like the the VARs that you've mentioned with the health services across the country, ATCHOs, um, land councils that are working tirelessly to really instil um, access to a whole range of what's known as social determinants of health, but really get, making sure that our people get healthy and in our own way. Um, <clears throat> what we do know, though, is that um, in spending time to provide some uh, cultural strengthening through um, Aboriginal-led initiatives that we support, what we see that as is an opportunity to really um, <clears throat> enrich uh, our young people and communities and be... In, in control and self-determining, I guess, their own experiences and what they need and know they need as communities uh, to heal that trauma from a transgenerational perspective. But we also know that 
as much work as we can do um, in supporting one another through our healing journey. Um, there's a 98% of the population which um, we need to actually influence uh, to get um, engaged and uh, connected and understanding of the experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country. Mm. And we are moving forward and today is a step to take um, a moment to be more educated for the broader community. Um, but our campaign, Are We Ready?, is actually about posing the question to, you know, our our communities across the nation to think about that. Are we ready to, to take a deeper step and retain that connection to the emotive impact mm. um, that has been had um, in Aboriginal communities and individuals um, and we're still experiencing today because... So if in our young children are sent to schools um, and they don't witness the value in of Aboriginal culture and how that's held up um, through the curriculum or in their day-to-day lives, if we're not valued as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, what does that say and continue to say around where, um, you know, where the broader community's view is um, in relation to honouring the most oldest living culture in the world. Mm, That's right. It's really important. Yes. And um, hence you launched the campaign, What's Missing in March, inviting Australians to reject racism and deepen the connections with the long and impressive story, as you said. Um, Today, uh, I guess, is an important day in in other ways, too, is uh, 50 years since the last referendum, um, where 90 people uh, in Australia voted for the Aboriginal people to be able to vote. Uh, it, I think it's about 20 years since Mabo Day, isn't it? Correct me if I'm wrong. So it, it's culminating to be a very big day today. Um, yeah. yeah. The problem is there's, there's a lot of anniversaries. And, you know, when you think of the 67 referendum and, and where um, Aboriginal people were counted in the census and the whole heap of movement and leadership um, that, that was from, uh, you know, Aboriginal people that have been advocating for years, but the broader community... But actually, in the heart of hearts, you know, when we think about what, what our values are as Australians and what to be fair and just is, we need to continue to ask that of ourselves as a nation. And I guess the What's Missing campaign launched on the uh, International Day of the Elimination of Racism was, although, um, unfortunately, you know, what are we missing in our, our workplaces, our parliaments, our local governments, our communities, which is actually ensuring that we are behaving or enacting the value of Aboriginal culture. And um, how in which we go about doing that is everybody's responsibility. Um, And that campaign was really targeted um, to actually, as our very first, you know, a new and emerging uh, not-for-profit organisation with a small... A number of staff, um, but big hearts and and great generosity and networks from a whole range of people and uh, communities. We're really trying to sort of again pose the question for people to consider. Hmm. And, and and in this quest, so to speak, um, you actually have a website that people can go to if they want to participate in your campaigns. Yes. Yeah, it's cultureslife.org. 
so it's easy just to get on there and um, get in touch. And as you say, you're on a, an NGO and you invite donations and other support as well, I assume. Absolutely, but it's, it's, I think it's critical. Um, I, the key message of, I want to put out there is that when Aboriginal people are determining the future and you talk about the work that's happening as we speak in Uluru, um, yes. the impact is sustainable. When we mm. are in control of our, our destiny across our communities and, and there's very few agendas um, over the country, um, if we were to look at all of them, that are purely... Um, investing in Aboriginal-led work, um, often it's actually put through mainstream structures and, and, and that comes with a whole range of complexities. But when Aboriginal people determine their future, that's where the sustainable change happens. Yes. Just like um, today when we take a moment to, to really think of the impact of stolen generations and what that means for our mob um, and the broader community, um, what it allows us to do is, is think about how we reset relationships in a constructive way or how we, rather than reset, explore ways to deep, more deeply connect and understand where is it that we can establish a value system mm. or a belief system that truly values the oldest living culture in the world. Yes, and respect human rights. Absolutely. And Absolutely. land rights, in my opinion, but, you know, <laughs> some people yeah. may disagree with that. And you know that. what, it is... It's deeply complex, absolutely, and you know it. It, it will be um, a motive, and the Aboriginal people that are out there speaking about it, um, you know, it's it's very complex issues when we're yes. talking about, you know, um, what drives our country and um, how do we influence change on the ground, mm. um, the role, the important role that treaties, um, the way in which we influence Parliament self-governance, all those elements are all critical for us as Aboriginal people because at the end of the day, I guess um, there isn't an Aboriginal person in this country, I would say, that doesn't want our First Peoples, regardless of where their countries are, to to feel valued and what that looks like and how it's expressed Mm. and how our children thrive Mm. is what every human being deserves. Mm. Um, Yes. Well put. Thank you so much, Belinda. That was a very valuable contribution to uh, the radio station and the uh, listeners. I'm sure they were, they'll be very happy to have listened to this conversation with you. And I hope you have a good day today. And um, whatever activities you've organized goes well. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. Bye, Belinda. Bye-bye. That was Belinda Duarte from the Culture is Life organization. She's the CEO and an Aboriginal person. We also want to thank Steve Adams, um, who, was, uh, the, who is the president of the Barnaby campus in the NTEU of Melbourne University. Um, and Jacob has left to, to go to work, so I'm here. I'm saying goodbye by myself. Hope you enjoyed the show, and um, we'll see you again next week. Uh, so here we go with the outro. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.com. 
www.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now?